Welcome back to another episode of the MicroConf Podcast. I'm Rob Walling, and today I catch up with Jason Cohen, the founder of WP Engine. He and I sat down just a month or two ago in Austin, Texas, in front of a live audience, and we talked through a bunch of his lessons learned, validating his idea for WP Engine, then building the company, stepping down as CEO and putting a CEO in place. It's an incredible journey. We had a great conversation. Before we dive into that, the Kickstarter for my new book, The SaaS Playbook, Build a Multi-Million Dollar Startup Without Venture Capital, is live. It was funded in the first two or three hours. As I record this, I believe it's at 250%-ish of the $20,000 goal. I would love it if you would head to kickstarter.com. You can search for my name, Rob Walling, or we'll link it up in the show notes. And back to Kickstarter, you get a hardback book plus an electronic copy, whether it's a PDF or whether it's the audio version, or there are tiers above that where you can get two copies and so on and so on. So you can check it out on Kickstarter, and I really appreciate your support if you want to help me out. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Jason Cohen of WP Engine. You're in this room because you don't want anyone telling you what to do. That's the deal. Like, let's be honest. Get rich and no one tells you what to do. So you start a company where your customers tell you what to do, your employees do whatever they want. <laughs> like, God forbid you have investors, they're telling you what to do. So oops, you, you, you failed. Love to introduce to you someone that I'm guessing most of you know, Mr. Jason Cohen. Can we give him a warm microconf welcome? Jason is the founder and the CIO of, uh, so up on the slide it said CEO, and then in my card it says CTO, but it turns out he's the CIO, Chief Innovation Officer at WP Engine. And he started WP Engine back in 2011, 2010. And in fact, interesting story that I might touch on a little more later, um, my first ever angel investment was in WP Engine. And when Jason Cohen emails you and says, hey, so I have this oversubscribed round and I'm starting this new thing, I literally didn't even ask him what it was. And I think you were supposed to attach a deck and you didn't, and I was just like, I don't care. I'm going to write this guy a check. And it was right after I had just purchased a small SaaS application. I didn't really have the money to invest. And Jason said the minimum is 25 grand, but whatever you can throw in. And I was like, God, I wish I could put in 25,000. But I robbed Peter to pay Paul, and I uh, wound up investing 20 grand in that first round. And little bit in the second, and then when we exited, early stage investors exited in 2018, it bought my house. Paid cash for my house, so thanks, sir. Yeah, it was a big deal. So with that, you started WP Engine in 2010, and I remember you, you like bootstrapped it to profitability, then raised some funding, and then bootstrapped it again, or not bootstrapped, but you got it to profitability again. Um, and today, like, where is, where is WP Engine? Employees, revenue, whatever you can talk yeah. about. Uh, so we have about 1,100 people globally, and they used to come into offices like this one. They no longer do, at least not in the main. Um, but so everyone's almost always work from home or uh, some kind of space that we, we, we have. Um, but we have about uh, 200,000 customers. We power, um, we power about 2.5% of the internet. Like not just WordPress, which is, our, which is what we host specifically, but of all websites. So that's a lot, because you know, two and a half percent times infinity is a big number. You know, it's like halfway to infinity, um, and uh, yeah. So, so it's 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 exciting because we have a lot of 
we have a lot of problems due to scale, human scale and technology. And that's fun. That's a different kind of problem, of course, but uh, that's exciting. And your startup right before WP Engine was called Smart Bear. And you sold that. You blogged about this in public. So you, you sold it for enough money that you never had to work again. Like you could have retired. You were in your early 30s, if I remember. So why go back to the drawing board? Like what was the impetus? And you did take some time off. You blogged a lot. That's where you and I got to know each other. You blogged. You did some speaking. Um, and then you got the bug. What, what was that process like? Yeah. Um, so at Smart Bear, I started this blog. That was cool in the, in the 2000s to have a blog. And I thought, it'll be like 37 signals where everyone will post on there and it'll be our culture. And then uh, no one ever posted on there but me, which probably was our culture. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so when I sold it in 2007 and I left in 2009 because my wife was pregnant and I had bootstrapped uh, also Smart Bear for, that was a total of seven years then. Um, so everyone in this room knows that's hard. So yeah, take a break. Of course, having a kid is not having a break. So I don't know what I was thinking, but I guess one is enough. <laughs> one of those two things is plenty, right? Um, anyway, so, uh, so, uh, so I was a stay-at-home dad, and writing was a great way to stay in contact with like, the, the world, do something intellectual in that, in that weird period where you, know, you're not, you look outside and you're like, I legit do not know if the sun is going up or coming down right now, but I'm going to sit here with this thing until it falls asleep, so I'm going to find out. You know? <laughs> anyway, in that, mo that mental mode, I was able to just keep writing with no deadlines or expectations, right? So that's good. It was, so that, that meant it a good prod project. And uh, so then the blog got popular and I would get on things like Hacker News every Monday, which is when I would schedule to post. And then it would crash a lot because you get a lot of traffic if you go to, if you get on Hacker News. And so I'd ask other bloggers like, how do you keep WordPress running when, you, when that happens? Uh, and they, the answer was always, I don't know, but if you find it, tell me, because I need that. Okay. So that was the seed. And then I did 50 five zero customer interviews. Uh, because I had another idea at the time that I also thought was good. I also did a bunch of customer reviews and figured out it was not a good idea. I mean, it was a fine idea. It wasn't a good business. Um, but then I did the same with SmartBit. I found, I mean, uh, WP Engine and I found, okay, if we made sites fast and scalable, secure, and if we had good service, they would pay 10 times what they currently pay people like GoDaddy and Bluehost for WordPress hosting if we did that, those four things. So that was the initial impetus. And to this day, if you look above the fold on the website, you can see speed scale. You know, you can see these concepts. Certainly in the first website, they were, you know, straight up bullet points, right? And so that's still why people sign up today um, in the main. Of course, we do a lot of things now. We have tools that, pe that people who make WordPress sites use. Um, some of them are used by literally millions of people for free, and some are for money. Um, we have another one that has 100,000 monthly active users. So we do now more than just have the website. There's these tools with, with significant customer bases and stuff. So now it's a little bit more broad, but uh, but fundamentally it's still people need to be online and the websites need to be fast and scalable. And so this this you know whenever any of us talk about oh you got to do customer development and figure out the pain and figure out the percentage to do it, like it's still that and it can be true now 13 years later almost it'll be 13 years in, in January. Um, still still right. You were the first story. Because I don't know that I'd heard the term customer development, right? Steve Blank came up with this at Stanford. And it's often attributed to Eric Ries, but it was not. It was a concept before that. And you were the first person I ever heard who did interviews to, to find out if this pain point was a valid, you know, going to be a valid business. And I later, I mean, my story of Drip, which I started in late 2012, was basically exactly what you did. But although I only did, I did like maybe 17, and I got 10 yeses, and I said, I'm doing it. Because I was, I was going to bootstrap it to a small, you know, it didn't matter. 
uh, as much, but um, I was always struck by this approach that it was, um, it just seemed out of nowhere and super innovative and super smart. It's what everyone knows today. Like this is, you've heard this a hundred times now, of course, find the problem, talk to a bunch of people, right? At the time, were you doing it because you'd heard of customer development? Or was it kind of like, this just seems like the smart, like a logical thing to do? It's a long time ago, so I don't remember, but I think so. I think I've been reading about stuff. And I think when I think about the Lean Startup, um, I feel like the good part about that is it got people, it got people at least trying to think more objectively. Like, we got to go actually find out the whole get outside the building, which I think is also Steve Blank. But anyway, in that whole Lean movement, let's say. I think that's good because people were really insular and not getting outside the building. We still don't, right? Nobody in this room really wants to talk to customers. We, we know what to do. We don't need to listen to them. You know, but, so that's a good pull. But I actually feel like the book doesn't really work. In other words, like, do you think that like, people who use the Lean Startup method are less likely to fail? I don't. I don't observe that. I don't have any data. I'm just saying I don't really observe that. It's not, if it is an effect that's so subtle that I can't tell. So I do think there's good impact, but I don't think it's a manual like it was sort of meant to be. And I've told Eric Reese that personally. <laughs> and I said, well, Eric, what if, if, since it works so well, why don't you um, do a startup? And of course, he, he won't. He can't. Because like, if, it if it's not a raging success, what does that mean? Now, I don't blame him for that. I wouldn't either. <laughs> you know? So he's doing his long-term stock market, whatever the heck it is. Um, and uh, you know, just something orthogonal, right? Which, by the way, seems like a great idea. Like, I hope he succeeds, it's, you know, because it's a cool idea. But, um, um, so I feel like there's some ideas, and, and customer discovery or development is one of those ideas where it's like, yeah, we probably should you know, talk to the customers and listen a little bit, I guess, you know, probably. But how is, is a good question. So I do have a recent post on how I did it, how I did it then and how we st I, I still like to do it. So we don't have to go into detail because you can just read that if you want to read it. Um, but like, because then it's like, well, what do you ask exactly? Right. You know, it, it, if you're just asking like, do you like this feature, they're going to say, yeah, sure. That's you know that seems pretty good, and you haven't learned a damn thing. So like that doesn't work. So you have to it has to be directed in some way. Besides plugging my own post, it it um, and by the way, I don't even use analytics on it. Like I, I learned a while ago, like don't look at the numbers, don't try to chase the things. Just like put it up there. If people like it, they'll like it. Don't even be tempted to look at <laughs> like Google Analytics. So I don't care if you look at the post or not. Um, the other book I really like about this is Teresa Torres's book, which I think is the Continuous Discovery Habits. And I think she and her methods are freaking great. And you know, most business books, you read it and just, maybe there's a good idea and then there's like hundreds of pages between the good ideas of just like filler to so, it's, so it takes up this much space on the shelf and they can hardcover it, you know? Um, or there is one really good idea that, that is worth it really, but still. In her book, I don't feel that way. I feel like every chapter, it's like, ooh, this is good. You know, you could use this. Oh, I'm going to, maybe I'm going to try it, like, all the time. It's like a, so I really, re no, no, no bullshit at all. And in particular, she does talk about customer interviews, but also, what do you do with that afterwards? Okay, so you've interviewed, now you have this pile of stuff. And now what? Like, how do you organize that somehow in, in, in some way so that you can, like, get a, get a feeling for things, share it with other people, of course, who so you might need to work with, like, engineers and so on, designers, maybe. Um, and then maybe pick what to do next exactly. And so she has thoughts in there like, um, another thing, for example, that I really like that she didn't invent, but it's just an example of another great thing from the book is right storming. So if, like for the last year, especially with COVID, this has been exciting for me. I know I'm just going off on a tangent, but, but it's like brainstorming. Again, like I always feel like brainstorming didn't work that well. Like you get everyone in a room, you're like, now think of stuff. 
Everyone's <laughs> like, um, you know, and then maybe someone has a halfway decent idea, so the room sort of gloms onto it. And yeah, I don't know, it just doesn't feel good. And then in the Zoom era, forget about it because you can't, you know. And so there's this thing, I guess, is roughly termed bright storming, where you have people understand the problem first. Maybe that's a short meeting to get like on the same page about the problem. Okay, but then maybe for the next week, whenever people want, that's another nice thing. Whenever it's you know nice for them to work. You, you, you do brainstorm alone, so write storming. Then you come back together, but now, since everyone's had the space to think, you know, different people think different ways. I, you know, one person may want a lot of time to ruminate. Someone else is like, I just fire it off and I'm done. I'm like, great, this, some people are good in the morning or the evening. Great, everyone can sort of work in the way that makes sense for this kind of work, which is different. So then when you come together, you got your stuff, so there's no like, Oh, that was a good idea, so we stop. No, 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 you've already got these. So you really do get everyone's ideas out there, and, you know, you, and, and then you go from there, of course. But it's just such a better way. And also, there's a study that showed, and the study, who knows, the study's probably bullshit. Again, who, who even knows when they say study? I don't know what that means. But th there was a study that showed that um, um, when you try to do normal brainstorming on Zoom, it does not work. But when you already have the ideas, like they're in the Miro board, or the Google Doc, and then on Zoom you're arguing about it, that does work. So it's like, oh, so this is another like remote work trick in this one area is write storm and then discuss together. That's a good use of time. So anyway, that's another thing I got out of her book. Again, I don't think she invented it, but who cares? If it's an assemblage of fantastic ideas, then you know, so be it. Yeah. Can you say the name of the book? Yeah. Oh yeah, so the, so the author is Teresa Torres, and the book is called Continuous Discovery Habits. She was also on a podcast with uh, Lenny Richitsky. Yeah. Is that how you say that? Lenny's podcast. Lenny's podcast. And uh, again, she's fabulous on that because, of course, she is. And uh, yeah, so I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah, that's great. That's a good recommendation. So one question I asked of founders on the podcast, and I ask it so often that we even have a, a musical sting that plays. And the question, and it involves a cash register, ching, but I say, when did you know you had product market fit? That's the question I ask. And I usually couch it by saying, look, product market fit, I don't believe it's not one or zero, it's a continuum, you get weak, and then it's stronger, 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 and then you'll find that you only have strong, stronger product market fit with a certain audience, and then as you branch into others, it's weaker. Whether you agree with all that or not, if I were to ask you that question, like with WP Engine, like when did you know you had product market fit, how would you, how would you describe it? Yeah, it was January of 2012. And the reason I know, do you seriously remember that? Yeah. And the reason I know is because suddenly, like, all you could do is try to keep up with customer demand, and it's literally you can't do anything else. There's, there's the support tickets are flying in, which you know is not necessarily, that's not part of the good news, right? But just like the, here come the orders, here come the support. You just can't even think about like, let's make a new feature. Like, are you kidding me? We have this backlog of tickets even of people signing up and migrating and this and that, and you just can't keep up. And then. Uh, then now you're buried and, and hiring's hard because you're too busy. And also you don't have a hiring practice of any kind. Of course you don't, why would you? And so like when this happened to us, we were tw four people. So this was two years in, we're still only just four, maybe we're five people actually. So again, a kind of a typical bootstrap thing, two years in, it is going well. Um, in generally speaking, I think we were around a million in revenue at that point and four, four or five people. So again, profitability, like you said, um, and then, oh God, and we went from one to five that year. And we just, and we kept going like nuts, you know, and just, it was that hockey stick thing. And, um, and what happened is we changed pricing. That's what caused it? Well, 
it's hard to run the experiment again, sure. but that happened. <laughs> After you, you change pricing, then that happened. There's also, it turns out, a seasonality. I mean, now that we're far away from 2012, there's a seasonality for us that the first quarter of the year people are building websites. Um, However, again, that the previous two years, that wasn't like that. And again, it never ended. So it wasn't just seasonality, but maybe that was a little kicker. Like maybe there were people at the end of the previous year thinking, and so maybe there's a little bit catching up. But um, yeah, it was pricing. And, and, and so since that's always a topic, and I know in the new book that you wrote, pricing is one of the topics. And see, it should be. And everyone wonders about pricing. Of course, nobody knows exactly what to do. And everyone will tell you the usual things. You've got to do anchoring. And you're like, I know, but like, what should I charge for it? You know? um, well, we, I did actually talk to a lot of customers. It was, like, I don't want to harp on the customer discovery, but I did. And so I heard certain things such as people would say, listen, for my, I have this one really big website, and I'm happy to pay $100 a month for it. That's fine. No problem. But I have like this one other site I make. It's for my mom. She's got an, like, an art studio. It gets two hits per month, you know? Are you telling me I need to keep my account with this other thing? And you know, yeah, just it was let me have it. Per site. At yeah, time, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah, was it was hundred yep. percent. Like, come on, just let me move a little crap site. Like, what are you doing? Um, so that was one thing. Is like, oh, at the higher plans, there should just be more sites. That was a revelation. It doesn't sound all that like freaking insightful, right? Like, okay, but no one else was doing it, and you know, it, I only figured it out because I kept hearing that type of thing. Oh, my friend. Oh, my. Mm -mm -mm. And it was like, okay. Or maybe it was an, a freelancer while they're working on a site, they need a place to put it before it launches. And it's like, okay, so you got these different signals that say that would work. Another thing was the lowest tier was $50 a month. It turned out it needed to be $29 a month. And what people would say is, um, well, I have these people at, at GoDaddy for $5 a month, and I can get them to pay more. I can tell them security speed, okay. But 10x, I can't get them 10x. But I could get them like maybe to 20, maybe 30 bucks. Like I get them there, but like mentally, I can't get them to. And so there's always this notion of price uh, in pricing of like, you could, you could generically call that something like willingness to pay, and, and it's true, but I think there's something more in, in subtle about it of like, I, I, it probably is worth 50, but they can't do that in one shot. Like mentally, that's not how they think about it. And that kind of emotional, how are they even thinking about it? And it wasn't about anchoring or, you know, that's not what it was about. So that's interesting of just like, how do people think about it? Another challenge I, I think a lot of bootstrap companies run into is many bootstrap companies, the, the product is some kind of adjoint to another product. We're a plug-in to WordPress. There's, there's literally uh, a thousand bootstrap companies that are a plug-in to WordPress, right? So that's, I have to know about those a lot, you know? But a lot of them are, you know, we're this for Salesforce or we this, you know? Of course, because there's some ecosystem and you can, get a, you, you can be a part of that. It just makes sense. Um, and nothing wrong with that, but it does set the price because, you know, well, I already pay the main company X, so how could I also pay a X to a plugin that's clearly some kind of small component? This is a super common thing, right? Like you hear this. So that kind of mental thing, I guess you could call that anchoring maybe, but I think it's more, again, it's more interesting and specific than just I see a price and I see another price, you know? Anyway, so that was one. And then the last, and then two more things. One is because maybe this is relevant or useful, I don't know. Um, one was we just made the most expensive one called business. Did that work? I have no idea. I honestly have no clue if that worked, but we did it. And then the other thing was we had a, um, we had a two-week free trial, which is kind of special because in hosting, you don't have free. Like now you do in, in, in a cloud. They, they give you free stuff. Um, but then like nobody did free because it costs money immediately. Like There is physically a server, and you're paying for power and, and bandwidth. Like It does cost. So like it's not like in software where it's free, and that's OK. It's like not OK. So that was pretty cool that we did that. 
But we had a 90% success rate after the two weeks. So I was looking at going like, well, number one, that's product market fit. When your trial is a 90% conversion rate. And number two, we're just losing two weeks of revenue, right? Like, apparently they knew they were going to be here. So I was like, all right, let's try a 60-day money-back guarantee. You're going to give me, the, give me the money now, but I'll like, give it back. And I actually thought this would not work. I tried it anyway, but I figured people would be like, I don't know if you're going to give it back. And, you know, like, I don't know if um, I'll have to ask for it instead of, you know, I just... But actually, uh, sales went up. And when I would ask people about it, and I probably should have asked them before, but oh well, um, they said, uh, oh yeah, before when it was two weeks, that wasn't enough time. But two months, that's enough time for me to check it out. And it was like, okay, they were just thinking about the time. That's interesting. Because I bet that if you had a you know, 60 or 90 day money back guarantee, you know, most people are not gonna do it. And, and, you know, but if in their mind, that's more time, maybe that's good, I don't know. Or you could try it for just a month and see and undo it, who cares? Because it's specifically for new customers. So that's the easiest way to test is with, if it's specifically for new customers, you can just undo it, of course, you know? So anyway, so that, that happened to work for us. Um, and that, that was coincident with this, with this enormous change. Right, and if you haven't watched, I referenced it earlier, <clears throat> but there's a talk on our YouTube channel called Building the Ideal Bootstrapped Business, I think it's called. And it's Jason Cohen from 2012, 13, somewhere in that range. And he talked a lot more about the money back guarantee, the charging up front, eliminating trial, a bunch of other stuff. So it's when I, when I say it's the, I, I refer to it as the best talk ever about bootstrapping a company, which is, it pains me that I haven't done that, but he, he did yeah, it first and I just can't. I can't Yours has more views, I so you can't did get it. there. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I just beat him in views last week. So he's, it's been the number one video on our, on the MicroConf YouTube channel for forever. And finally I passed it, but I, with a video like seven SaaS ideas you should steal today. It's like not, not what I want to be known for, right? It's like, can't I have the amazing framework that everyone refers to? Um, so a couple other questions as, so you know, we're talking about product market fit and, and measuring that and obviously like uh, support tickets going up, um, uh, trial to paid being amazing, MRR is a thing. These are all metrics, right? And, and a lot of folks get overwhelmed by saying, well, there's, I can measure 10, 20 different metrics in my startup, early stage, let's say you're half a million ARR, a million, whatever, early stage, bootstrap, mostly bootstrap. Were, were there one or two metrics that you were just obsessive about that you feel like folks should, should pay attention to? Or is it more, are there too many to narrow it down to those? So before the hypergrowth started, besides just MRR, not really. It was just like try to make the customers happy. Um, I think a lot of companies have a good cancellation rate early simply because there hasn't been enough time for people to decide that they don't like it. So whenever there's like, the product's been in market for six months and everyone's still here, we have a perfect, and it's like, just wait, that's going to change, you know, <laughs> right? Um, so, but, but just trying to keep people happy and you know, that was, that was, that was largely it. We weren't trying to do LTV or any of that nonsense. And then once product market fit hit, it was like, who cares? We just need to like, operate. We need, we're going to hire people and try to just, you know, fix some stuff or automate some stuff. And I don't know, it just, who can even think about the metrics, you know? Um, now, of course, we're very sophisticated about, about all that. So I don't know, of course, there's not going to be one metric that works for all companies that, that, that should be clear. But a good question is like, so how do you pick one that's good for you? Like, what do you do about that? So I think, um, so I think there's, 
there's obviously the, the inbound vanity metrics in the front, how much traffic do I get, right? And you know that doesn't matter because if that number changed a lot, like nothing would really happen, you wouldn't react to it. Any, any number where you wouldn't really react to it, that's not a key metric, right? Um, and then there's these metrics that are the obvious ones like, like retention and MRR and this kind of stuff. But the problem with those is that they're way too laggy and they're multi-input. So in other words, the reason that you have MRR this month is many, many things. What happened in sales? What happened in marketing? How many people stayed? How many people upgraded? How many people downgraded? Did they like the product? Did they like your service? Like, that's all in that number. So on the one hand, it's the most important one because if it's not there, then you uh, starve to death. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's the most important number and it's not the one that you can operate the business on because it happens way too late and there's too many inputs to it. So to me, like if you imagine the customer moving through their journey from like, oh, I found out about you on the website. And, it, and then again, it depends on the company, obviously. Maybe there's a trial, maybe not. Maybe they're using the product, maybe not. Maybe there's some moment where they get value or moment where now, now probably the customer will be successful and stay. Now probably. That moment, that to me is the, is the one. Because you know revenue will come. I mean, if, if, you, if you're looking at your data, you'll know revenue will come if this happens. But this happens every day. And I can try to do stuff and see this week or even today whether that changes. And so when revenue may or may not change later, I can, I can actually operate on this. So as an example, um, early on in Netflix, their number was the number of people who put three or more DVDs in their queue in the first day. Very specific. But because they found just a correlation, not necessarily causation, but just the correlation that if you put three or more DVDs, da, 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 then you were like seven times more likely to become a customer and stay for at least six months. Like it wasn't even that long, right? So they're like, that's the thing. So we got to get people in and get the thing in the queue. So they, so like, all right, if that's the goal, what do you do? And it's actually very easy to think of things. Well, let's ask them what genre they like and just put stuff in the queue for them. <laughs> or let's, uh, let's take our most popular, 10 most popular titles and just suggest before they get hit next that they have to put, like you could just kind of make it happen, right? So. The nice thing is it, it, may, it may be smart actually to do that, and, and it was. Like it wasn't even gaming the system that worked. Um, now of course over time that should change, and early on it should change all the time. Like all right, now you're better at that, now the most important metric is this other one. That's fine, right, because you're just, and then later, as time goes on and the thing's more mature, it probably doesn't change all the time. But even today at WP Engine, we're very sophisticated with metrics, we have lots of people, and lots of product lines, lots of stuff. We talk about all the time how like the revenue of this product is this laggy multi-input thing. It also combats, um, as, as you do grow a bit and you have more employees, you start getting like, engineers are like, well, we can't, we can't look at revenue because that's the sales team and you're gonna get this like who owns what crap. So again, the way you slice that off is just say, well, MRR is clearly the output of all of us doing a good job. So it's none of our primary metric. Sales team has their own stuff, they got quotas and whatever the hell they got. And what do we got? It can't be MRR. So, so I, f I think finding that, um, that, again, that moment where you're delivering value to customers, that's a great thing because it's probably true, it's probably best, it's very customer-centric, customer-minded. You can literally draw it out and probably find it, you know, like, like pictorially. Um, it's easy to explain to the whole team, like, okay, so these, these metrics are inputs to this, not like a perfect formula, but just in general. Like, it is true that the more traffic we get to the website, the more we'll eventually have this. So it is important, just not our key metric. And the conversion rate here is important, just not our key metric, but yeah, it's an input. And that's actually another nice thing you can do with that one central, some people call it North Star, is you can say, 
Um, well, what are those immediate metrics in front that, again, maybe we want to optimize? So for example, um, Instacart has f famously like had just like total cart value as, as, uh, as their North Star, but then it's very easy, again, to think of what are the inputs. So it's like number of customers at all, average size of cart, number of items in the cart, those overlap a little. It's okay, this is not an equation. This is just like stuff that generally leads to the thing we want. And you track it, you don't have to have goals for it necessarily, you're just looking at it. Like this is, this is the, like a dashboard in a car is not goals, it's just what's going on. So in that, with that mentality of a dashboard, it's a dashboard of what's going on. And at any moment you could say, you know, I don't love our conversion rate. Maybe for the next couple of months we'll just focus on that. On that. It's an easy thing to say. And, you know, or, or uh, um, uh, uh, oh, these two things are linked, so we're going to, you know, do this one thing and we'll do both of these at the same time. That'll, that'll feel good, you know. So it also provides, like, a way to sort of decide what should we do? What should we do to make it better? And if, we, if the question is simply, what do we do to make MRR go up? I mean, that is an okay question, but again, it's just like, I mean, I don't know, a million things. It's such an undirected space. It's such a huge space. Whereas saying, like, we need, the cart, we need the average cart size to be bigger and some of the things that go into that are these. Which ones do we think we could pick that either we think we can move, we got some ideas, we're excited about it even is, an, is a reasonable, reasonable like reason to prioritize something? It will be fun. But it can't only be fun. It has to be fun but in service of something. So here's some some things that, that you've determined are smart to, to do. Um, and I do think that's an underrated thing too. I'll just say that using, your, using excitement as a reason to do something and if it's the only reason, that is bad, because uh, maybe that's not useful. But when it's a tie, you know, well, there's like three projects we could do. All of them sound pretty good. We have no idea which one would work, because why would we know? To have the tie go to the thing that people are excited about is smart to me. And again, we do that even here, where that sounds like, how could it's fun be a reason <laughs> at scale? But it's exactly what we do, because what I figure is, People will simply work on it harder and care more and just want to do it more. And that's a huge advantage. <laughs> so, I mean, if one thing is clearly better, then do that, obviously. But, but usually it's not. Usually there's a few, and who the hell knows? Okay, well, then do the thing that you're like, going to spend a lot of energy and everyone's going to like because that probably gives that the best chance at success and it's also the most fun. And we should allow ourselves to make that be a reason. Right. So you have bootstrapped. You have raised angel funding, you've raised venture, you've kind of done it all to speak. I know folks ask you for advice, right? A new founder comes up and says, I'm starting XYZ, should I raise funding? What do you think about that? How do you frame that in your mind of the, maybe the trade-offs? Realizing that it's no longer bootstrapping and venture, that yeah. there, is the, there are the tiny seeds or what, you know, there's this yeah. in between now. Yeah, well for, for traditional venture, the answer is, the default answer is you shouldn't, except if, and then there's like a bunch of things that, you know, well, if all of this is true, then, then yeah, that, that's probably the right way. Because like all things, like all tools, there's a time and a place where like, that's the right tool, you know? So even at WP Engine, it was not the right tool at first. I did not expect it to be ever the right tool. Um, but then it turned out like there was things like huge and growing market, everything's, you know, kind of wind at our back. This could really be a billion dollar plus company, now it is. Um, and, and so on, like you could just tick down, oh man, there's like actually all the reasons, all the, all the kind of conditions that VC could make sense um, actually, actually hit it, oddly enough. I mean, almost none do. So it actually made sense. I think also a big factor for me personally was that I had bootstrapped a few companies and 
I just thought I'm a bootstrapper. Like, it did not occur to me that like, I should do something else. Um, but I also had this feeling this time of, well, geez, like the opportunity is there. Like it became apparent, again, two years in, to be clear, like, you know, but it came apparent that it really is that big of an opportunity. And like maybe this time the journey can be different. And that doesn't mean better or something. It just means it's just different. Like the constraints are different. Instead of the constraints being profit, um, the constraint becomes growth. Or, or, or the, the mandate becomes growth and, and constraint of money is less so and so forth. It's just a different game. And so like maybe a different journey this time would be interesting and fulfilling. And so for me, it was like, that was part of it for me, but that's just a personal thing, of course. Um, so VC, it's like, you shouldn't accept if, if, it, if it really is that sort of a thing. Um, as for the other stuff, I mean, it's just so hard to get the engine turned over in any company, just getting enough people there, getting that product market fit, right? So I really do feel like if you haven't quit, quit your day job, then it's just, it's just too hard for it to succeed. And so the hope is, well, but maybe I'll get lucky and it will anyway, and then I'll quit my day job. And of course that's true, and it's simply practical. So I'm not saying that's, again, I'm not, there's no judgment that I did the same thing, right? Like, like just 20 years ago. <laughs> um, so no judgment, of course you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. I'm just saying that does not give the company the best chance of success. That's, that's I think that's simply a fact. So if you can take down a little bit of money and have the a time and attention where this is all you do ever, it's clearly gonna be better for the, you know, risk for the company. I mean, I, I don't think you argue that. Um, or if you could afford to hire just one person. I mean, the difference between one and two people is a very big difference, even if the other person's not a founder. It's still a really big difference. Or afford to do something, like maybe you're in a space where design does matter and you're not a designer. Well, if it matters, you know, so it depends, on, depends obviously on what you're gonna do with it, but, um, or if you can experiment in marketing. So I do think you should know what the money's for. So if the idea is like, I don't know, so I can quit my job. It's like, and, and do what? I don't know, buy ads? Like, th th then that's not actually good because that's not, a, that's not a, a plan. But if it's like, the only thing stopping me from whatever the next phase is, getting this version, making this partnership, getting this number of customers is one, two, and three. Now you may be wrong about it, like, but, you, but you have a theory and it's like, well, I talked to all these people and they said this and I'm seeing these competitors and they're running in this other direction. I can run in this direction. And here, I, look, I have 10 people saying, please do run in this direction. And the only thing stopping me is something to do with money. Well, there you go. You just you just decide. You just said why this is a good this is good for the business. So then it makes sense. Yep. All right. Very good. I think I have one one maybe I have two questions to wrap us up. One is you started WP Engine 2010. You raised funding. You were the CE founder and CEO for several years. And then I remember at a certain point getting an investor update that said, Jason is, it wasn't even stepping down, it's like stepping to the side, right? And I don't, did you become CTO at that point? Yeah. Okay. And you brought in, with Heather? Remember? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the names, but um, what was that? Like there was no, no VC was forcing you out, right? Right, was, right. I mean, right. it was your choice was my understanding. Yeah, this was a few years after VC, so yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was your choice to do that, to step, essentially step down as CEO of your own company. Yeah. I guess two questions there. Like, what was that decision like? And was that hard? Like, after you did it, <laughs> how hard was that? I, I interviewed Rand Fishkin a couple months ago in, in Seattle, and he had his own experience of doing this. If you read his book, <laughs> Lost, Lost and Founder, it was very, very hard. I've never heard you, you know, talk about this decision that way, but uh, I'm, I'm curious to get your take. 
yeah, he, he obviously did not enjoy his experience, um, whereas I did, um, which, is, which is the risk. I mean, you're looking at it, right? Um, they, can bo they both happen. Um, so first, how did I make that decision? So um, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's a framework which at this, I tweaked, and so it kind of became known, or at least here, as, as my framework. I guess all ideas are inherited and tweaked, probably, but okay, um, about how to think about, I guess you could say personal fulfillment or just what's, what's good to do. And the circles are uh, joy, skill, and need, meaning what the company needs done. And my observation there, and this was, you know, again, this was synthesized from other stuff. I didn't like invent this from whole cloth, right? Um, the observation was that while this is in a sense obvious, um, there are these traps that occur when you have two of them. So when you have joy and, 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 and founders are always trapped in them because no one tells us what to do. It's why we're here. <laughs> You're in this room because you don't want anyone telling you what to do. That's the deal. Like, let's be honest. Get rich and no one tells you what to do. So you start a company where your customers tell you what to do, your employees do whatever they want. <laughs> like, God forbid you have investors, they're telling you what to do. So, oops, you, you, you failed. But anyway. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So, so, uh, so you fall in these traps and like who can tell you otherwise is, is kind of a, a problem, right? So the joy skill trap is you love it and you're good at it, so you do it. And it feels good, and you have flow, you get in flow states, which we're all told is good. Of course, it is. So hooray! And then you're, but you've missed what the company needs done. So the classic for me uh, is the engineering founder who should be working on sales and marketing, or whatever, and is instead making that next new feature that, but two people asked for it, and you're right, they did, but that's not what you should be doing. But that's your flow state. It's a classic trap of that, right? And who's going to tell you otherwise? And after all, this should be fun. Yeah, right. Again, what? No, it's not. It's not fun at all. Um, just moments are fun. You have little peaks of fun. And back to not fun. That's how it should be. Um, so so, um, so that's, the, that's that trap. So another trap is, is uh, the company needs it done, and you're good at it, so you do it. But no joy. But no joy. And so that's burnout land. And I can't afford to hire someone to do this. So like a cl another cl like a, one for me was accounting. I'm good at that. Like when I sold SmartBear, no joke. Like the 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 the, uh, the firm that bought SmartBear, I say firm because it, it was a it, it was kind of complicated. But there's this VC in New York called, um, but it's like a late stage, uh, uh, very like kind of innovative, creative type of thing called Insight Ventures, and they'll do things like they'll buy lots of things and consolidate and sell it, but over a period of like a decade, like a like a really long strategy. They have interesting stuff. Anyway, they're the ones that bought the company and then renamed the whole thing SmartBear and all this weird stuff. Anyway, they said when they bought, they bought, they buy companies all the time. And they're like, this is the cleanest, crispest books we've ever seen. And I'm like, well, what else do you need? They're like, nothing. Like, we pulled random bank, you know, statements and looked and it like to the penny. And we're like, this never happens. We, this is fine. We just trust everything must be fine because you're crazy to, <laughs> to be this obsessive. So that's like, I have the skill to be a good accountant, like objectively. And the company needs accounting. I mean, of course. But if you just do that all the time, right? And so classic burnout for, for uh, bootstrappers because we can't afford to hire enough people to do those things, so we do it anyway. And we also have this mentality, which we think is coming from a, well, it is coming from a good place. We think it's good for others on our team, which is, this is shit work no one wants to do, so I'll do it and protect my people so that they'll stay and want to be here. 
But what you forgot is that if you asked your people, they would not want you always doing scut work that you hate. They don't want you doing that. So like they don't want you burnt out either. So maybe you could trade off or maybe, you know, maybe we could pitch in and whatever. Like there's prob probably they don't actually want you to do that, but you didn't ask. Anyway, so, so that's a classic one. And then there's the uh, joy and need. I love it and the company needs it, so what's wrong with that? Don't have the skill for it, not very good at it. You said the company needed it. If we start with that, if, they, if it doesn't need it, you shouldn't be doing it. But okay, you just said it needed to be done, but you suck at it. So a classic example here would be like um, marketing. Again, I'll take the engineer, because that's what I am, so it's easy for me to pick the examples. And so it's like, we need to do AdWords. And you're like, I can figure out AdWords if stupid markers do it. I can surely do it. You know? like, I know more math than they do. And so, and besides, if I'm going to hire someone to do it, even if it's a consultant or a, this, even a part-time, if I'm ever going to pay someone to do it, I need to understand it. Otherwise, I won't be able to interview them or manage them and hold them accountable because I won't know. Like, and they tell me this won't work or this is normal. And I won't know because I've never done it. So I need to do it is the conclusion. So you do AdWords really badly for three months and now you're an expert, you think. And now what? And the company needed it done, again, under the presumption that it was needed to be done, in fact. And so that sucks. And then you hire somebody and you still don't know how to manage them actually because you're not actually an expert. It's a cl another classic. And again, who's, who's going to tell the founder, you, you, you actually are bad at marketing? Yeah, you need a co-founder. And it's not bad, then, then, then like, but not excellent. Like, isn't the point to have excellence everywhere? Isn't that the goal anyway, not mediocrity? So, so, um, bringing, so first of all, that I love this framework, and I use it all the time. I use it for other people. I use it for myself in the CEO thing, which is why I went into it in so much detail. So for me, it was like, all right, so what is a CEO? So at this time, we're like maybe 80 people, 70, 80 people, and it's still growing fast. Like, clearly, we're going to be hundreds over the next few years and at that time. So it was like, okay, do I love managing people? No, it's one of the things I hate the most, actually. Right now I have no direct reports. That's one of the reasons why I have this title CIO. now. Yay! Um, like Dharmesh Shah at HubSpot, right? It's the same thing, yay. Um, so no, I don't like that. And then there's board management, because at that time we had raised money, and okay, and, and, um, and we've got to hire and manage a, a global sales team. Right now, right now, we have a few hundred people in sales all over the place. I don't want to do, like, just joy, just straight up joy. I don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what about skill? Well, yeah, that too, actually, <laughs> for a lot of those things. Some things I, I can do, but some things, you know, no. So you start doing all that, and it's like, oh, I should be doing, at that time, engineering and product. I mean, that's what I love, and I'm good at it, and the company needs it done, obviously. And um, so now I say that like it was just this easy thing. That took about four months of really difficult struggle, okay, and emotional turmoil. And there was this moment where I got over it, which is useful to repeat, because I think because um, I think it's not just me. I was at a, um, I was in this, uh, this bar outside of a restaurant with, um, it, was, it was a person from our, on our board, but this person had also been a founder multiple times, taken companies public, and like gone through everything, right? Like that kind of person. And uh, we were just sitting there, and he could tell, like, I know we should hire a CEO. I know, like, everything I just told you, like, I know that. But I'm just like, of course, I mean, who, who's, like you said, you did that? Like, it's just, it's, like, not credible, right? And, uh, and he just goes, um, I know what you're thinking. I'm like, what? And he goes, you're thinking one day, like, maybe you'll ring the bell on the NASDAQ, and uh, you want the credit. I'm like, ah. God damn it, is it just ego? <laughs> like, is that it? And it's like, yeah. 
And I'm like, okay, fair enough. And he goes, but here's the thing. You're the founder. Like, you'll always get the credit. And for me personally, just at that moment, that's what I needed to hear. <laughs> for what it's worth, my light bulb moment of like, oh, yeah, I get to keep all the ego stuff, like, forever. No one, really, like, because there's nothing wrong with keeping the ego stuff. Why shouldn't you, for God's sakes? This is hard. You should at least get that. But it's like, yeah, you, get to, you just get to keep that forever. It's like, oh. Oh, yeah, then why would I want to, like, run the board meetings? <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> Wait, I cannot run the board meetings and get the credit? <laughs> That's what I want to do, you know? So for me personally, that was my emotional moment that I had to get over. So, again, easy to say, but... Four months in, in, like, that was the thing. Um, but it, it's been fantastic. I mean, just whatever Rand happened, like, we had the opposite. Um, Heather is the best. and, uh, and She's still CEO today. Still CEO today, nine years later. I, I, I've said this many times, but I've always called her the, the late joining co-founder because mm. I really feel like that. I mean, and anyone who's been here, um, I'm, I'm looking for someone that, that's here because they would agree, but... Um, uh, anyone who's been here for even like five years would agree like, yeah, if you told me Heather was the co-founder, I would, I would say, yeah, of course. Like, it just makes sense. Like, just culturally and leadership and the way she is and everything, um, it, just, it just is like that. Uh, and I stole that, um, that little phrase from um, um, Reid Hoffman at LinkedIn, who also famously brought in a CEO, did not work. They had to kick that CEO out, then brought in Jeff Wiener, which was amazing and, you know, et cetera. And so... Um, so I was actually looking at that example during, during all this, and that was his phrase that Jeff felt like a, a, a late Jaren co-founder. I thought, yeah, that's, that is kind of how it already feels, like this is probably good. So that, I kind of stole that phrase from him, but it's totally true. Um, and it, it was funny. So Heather was a COO at a public company, Bizarre Voice, um, when we were talking to her. And at a public company, you can't, uh, you can't make public that you're maybe talking to a C-level executive, that would, that's effectively like insider trading to know that. So you don't say anything, and then when it's all done, you file the certain form, and then you can talk about it, because when you file the form, that's when the world knows, and now you're allowed, okay. So I wasn't able to tell anyone around Austin, and Heather was well-known in Austin uh, for, for a few decades already for, for being amazing. So anyway, finally, I was able to tell people, I remember I was at, a, at an event at Capital Factory, and I was talking to, oh, oh John, I was talking to John Price, right? So you know what I'm talking about. He's, he's, like, he's like this little energetic guy, really smart, but cra like crazy glasses and with stuff. And he's just like, you know, and, uh, uh, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, oh, 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 I, I can tell you, like Heather's joining us as, as, as the CEO. You know Heather, right? Didn't you work with her or something? And he goes, Jason, Jason. And he grabs my, my forearm. I look at them because they know John. <laughs> you, can, you can picture this, right? He's like, eh. And he's like, listen, you don't understand. You know Heather's gonna do a great job. You know she's great. I'm like, yeah, yeah I know. Like, <laughs> and he goes, you don't understand. Heather's my favorite person. And if you ever do anything to hurt her, <laughs> like what? <laughs> what? Is it like your bro long lost brother? Yeah. Like what's ha what's ha what's going on here? Like okay, I won't. I won't. I don't even know what that means. What would I do? <laughs> anyway. Um, so that's when you know you've hired a good person, I guess. That's an awesome, exactly. That's an awesome story, man. And if you want to hear more about the joy, skill, and need framework, you did a great talk at Saster. So you can go to YouTube, type in Saster, Jason Cohen. I think it's the only talk you've done there because it's number one in the, in the result. And I didn't know he was going to mention it today, but I actually watched that talk a few months ago. And I have a screenshot. I, I don't know. He has a draft of my book, which is why I mentioned it earlier. But did you see the screenshot I took? Of, it's laid, really late in the book under the mindset oh. thing. But it's of your joy, need, and luck thing. Because I was talking about my own burnout. 
and how I was doing some of the traps you just mentioned I did myself. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, Jason Collins.